This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on January 26th and 27th. Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. We're going to kick off today's show with a look at a controversial proposed change at Austin ISD that has teachers up in arms. Reporter Morgan O'Hanlon is here to walk us through it. Thanks for coming back on the show, Morgan. Hey there. Happy to be here. So, Morgan, why don't you start with telling us what the 7 of 8 plan is and why it's got teachers so angry? Of course. So the 7 of 8 change is a proposed schedule change in AISD on the table right now, essentially with the intention of cutting back some costs and reducing the district's deficit. So the 7 of 8 change proposes that, okay, you have eight class periods throughout the day. And right now in AISD's secondary schools, you've got two planning periods that teachers have to plan out their lessons for the other six classes. Now, in order to save costs, the district essentially wants to have that planning period or have that planning time, getting rid of one of those planning periods and replacing it with another class. And although um, this is better than another proposal that had some parents angry about their children's potentially getting robbed of elective periods. And that's been a really big boon for the district that's helped them gain enrollment here. So it's instead of that plan, it's a little bit better than that one, at least from the parent purview. But this has teachers really, really upset because they've been really, really overworked. So when I speak with folks from the education union here in town, they're pretty angry that this is yet another Thing that teachers are going to have to deal with. Presumably, teachers are not going to plan less. It just means they won't be planning during the school day. Is that a, a correct assumption? More exactly. work that they're taking home? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we've been hearing stories all throughout the pandemic of teachers working 60, 70, 80 hour week, already working outside of their allotted time and during the school hours too build their lesson plans, especially as we were going on virtual and teachers were having to adapt for that hybrid, even more so having to cater lesson plans to both in-person and virtual students. But now there's been all these stressors, there's been all these changes and they're reducing their planning time. So it just seems to a lot of teachers like a big slap in the face. Sure. And to clarify, this was brought up at a board of trustees meeting, right? Like where this isn't being voted on currently. This is just being floated. Correct. So this has been something that's been on the table for about 
two months now. Granted, the, the, the more recent development in it is that it is at the campus level that the district is discussing it. So essentially, as the district is getting ready to go into budgeting season, they're having chats with principals to talk about what are going to be the needs at every single individual campus. So principals are kind of chatting this over with administrators, trying to figure out a solution that might work. And the actual discussions more in depth on this that we're going to be hearing are going to be all throughout February as the district goes through its budgeting process. In fact, on the district's calendar, there's a couple of links where anyone who's concerned with the schedule change can go and sign on to talk during proposed comment periods on this. So let's talk about why this measure is being proposed. What's behind this growing budget deficit? Well, that would be a lot of things. So the district <laughs> the district has been losing students for about five years or so. So, I mean, obviously, like funding for public education is a never-ending saga, but the district losing students over the past five or so years has been a really big deal. The district has been losing students at a pretty big rate, and there's funding dollars attached to every single one of those students' heads. So every time the district loses a student, that's more dollars out the window. So Let me interrupt you there. Why is the district losing students? Are they losing them to private schools? Are they losing them because they're not living in Austin anymore? What's the story there? Probably a little bit of the private school, charter school flight. More so, though, like because parents are choosing these schools for better opportunities. I mean, certainly maybe a little bit of that. Probably because of flight due to the cost of living in Austin. Austin's really, really expensive. Parents are wanting to move out to a place where they can buy homes and also afford property taxes. And so they're moving to some of the neighboring districts is what some of the district representatives have told me. Okay. That makes sense. So growing budget deficit, under-enrollment is a huge problem. What are some of the other stressors right now on teachers? Sure. So one big story we were hearing as school was going back in, there's been a whole bunch of behavioral issues dealing with some of the students who were not quite prepared to come back into the classroom after the trauma of the pandemic and a year and a half, two years of virtual learning, a lot of behavioral issues. And from what I was hearing, they were bad. These are not just like occasional fights. These were like big, big brawls, threats from students to teachers, just not pretty stuff on campuses. That was one really big thing. I mean, lack of teacher pay, again, another thing that's been a tale as old as time. But this summer, because of the budget woes, a small annual raise was withheld from teachers. Another attempt that was made to reduce the deficit. Which is pretty much the absolute worst thing you can do to try to motivate teachers who are already, I mean, obviously this pandemic has been unprecedented for every single person living through it, but I think collectively we all acknowledge that what teachers and what students also are going through, they're bearing a huge brunt of this. 
So teachers are dealing with students who are sort of poorly transitioning back to the classroom. They're dealing with chronic lack of pay and a missed bonus. Based on your reporting, do we anticipate resignation? I mean, I guess resignations have already been the big story of this pandemic for teachers, right? Yeah. I mean, we just saw some new numbers and the resignation and retirements rate from this fall was crazy, crazy high. I'm talking like more than like 30% higher than it was in the same period the year before, which would have been 2020 at the height of like the pandemic's most deadly period. So now that we've, I mean, obviously we have Omicron, but things have kind of generally it seems the stakes have been raised, lowered a little bit. And even so, the resignations and retirements have just been crazy high, like higher than last year. Now, if this change gets approved, a lot of people are saying that it's going to be their last straw. And well, the la- that phrase seems to be f- thrown around so liberally. It's like, it's hard to take it, hear it and take it seriously when you hear it now. But seems like a lot of people are serious about that because this is going to increase teacher workloads and people are pretty scared about what that's going to mean for work-life balance. And they've been working so hard already. (laughs) I will say there is a, again, this is not something, any concrete proposal. There has been talks of a small 2% raise. So, (laughs) I mean, if that can do anything to make up the gap for that, (laughs) but is that you said the budgeting process was going to start, is that early spring? February is when they're going to be chatting about it at least and having comment periods for the public. Even though this was discussed at the last board information session, it was actually not an agenda, but some of the discussion happened anyway. It's going to be discussed way more at length in the next month or so. Okay. You know, I'm curious. And I feel like, again, we should stress, like, literally no school is thriving right now. Like, these are... It's very true. Yes. Like, it's uh-huh. this is hard on teachers. It's hard on students. It's hard on support staff. And it's hard on administrators. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. All that said, Superintendent Stephanie Elizalde, she came to the job in August 2020, mid-pandemic, really at arguably one of the absolute worst times of the pandemic. How do folks think she's doing in the job? Or is it a depends on who you ask sort of situation? I feel like every time I hear somebody want to complain about her, I always hear a concession. Like, it's always like, well, she's way, way, way better than the last administrators. And certainly her administration has been very transparent in a lot of its decision-making. I mean, I think a lot of the times as any administration go, they say they're going to be really transparent and then actually end up being a little bit less so. So, I mean, I think she's done pretty good for an administrator. I mean, I, I don't think it's perfect. And I think there's a lot of problems with administration, but I mean, for handling a budget this large in a district this big, I think the general consensus is like, I mean, we're angry, but she's doing probably B minus maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think that's actually pretty good considering. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, she's obviously got quite a few more challenges ahead of her. So Morgan, thank you so much for coming on and explaining the latest situation that Austin teachers are dealing with. and. Look forward to reading more of your reporting on the beat. 
It was a pleasure chatting with you. So you are listening to the Austin Chronicle show on Co-op Community Radio. And just a reminder that voting is currently underway in the Austin Music Poll. That's the Austin Chronicle's annual reader-driven accounting of Austin's music community. Categories include Best Band of the Year, Best Musician of the Year, Best Fiddle Player, all kinds of exciting categories. And it's all driven by reader votes. Voting ends January 31st at midnight, and you can check it all out at vote.austinchronicle.com. And we are going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. the Austin Chronicle show on 91.7 FM co-op community radio. My next guest is Austin Chronicle food editor, Melanie Haupt, here to talk about an eventful week in the Austin restaurant industry. Hi, Melanie. Hey, Kim. Well, Melanie, I want us to start a really sad place, unfortunately. There was a pretty dramatic fire this week. Why don't you talk to our listeners about that? Yeah, so... On Monday night around 11 o'clock, the beloved iconic bistro and bakery Texas French bread caught fire and burned not to the ground, but close enough. And it's really, really devastating. Fortunately, no one was hurt in the fire, but the restaurant is a complete loss. I think they're saying something about like $1.6 million in damages the pictures are pretty devastating to look at. And yeah, people are really, really, really sad about it. There's been a GoFundMe posted for the employees, which is really phenomenal. And the response has been very enthusiastic. The hundred grand goal has been surpassed by about $12,000 as of right now, as of this recording. And yeah, it's just really sad. There's a lot of hope that they'll be able to rebuild, but that's probably a ways down the line. Right. And Texas French bread has a whole sort of a unique place, especially in a town where there, you know, there's just been a lot more turnover and a lot more expansion, mm-hmm. a lot more new people flooding into town every day. And this is really, I think, everyone I've talked to has a story about Texas French bread. Or when I was in college, I lived two blocks from it. It holds a very special place in a lot of people's hearts. And also in terms of just 
Texas French bread was really on the vanguard of the farm to table movement, you know? Yeah, absolutely. When I was writing my book, not I'm not meaning to plug my very old book at this point, but I will <laughs> name drop away. <laughs> but when I was researching my book, Historic Austin Restaurants, <laughs> I did make the connection between sort of Texas French bread, especially when Murph Wilcott took it over in the early 2000s, like 2006-ish. You know, over from his parents, right? From his parents, yeah, um, who had run it since the early 80s, late 70s. And yeah, he was the one who was working with the farmers and, you know, doing sort of locavore, monthly locavore dinners and, you know, and then kind of branched out into sort of wine service. And, you know, and they were also at the farmer's market, like you could go to the farmer's market and get your fresh veggies and get a loaf of bread from Texas French bread. So yeah, they have been a cornerstone in the sort of farm to table local food movement for a long time, decades. Well, in your piece, sort of memorializing Texas French bread, when you reported on the fire, you drew the connection to the building itself being really historic too. Yeah, there's a lot of significance to that building as regards the Austin music scene. And you see some people kind of bringing that up in the kind of postmortem, for lack of a better word, that, you know, before it was Texas French bread in the 60s, it was an Italian restaurant called Rome Inn that was transformed into a live music venue in the mid seventies. And, you know, the DNA of Rome Inn is still stamped all over the Austin music scene, you know, Seaboy's heart and soul run by Steve Wertheimer of the continental club is named after Seaboy parks who ran Rome Inn until it closed in the 1980s. So you can see it's the Rome Inn is all over Austin music culture. And then Fast forward to sort of the late 70s, it was Studio 29, which was a punk venue. So yeah, it's got some serious historical significance for Austin music and Austin culture. You know, after you posted your story, we had a reader write in to say, well, don't forget, Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan played the Roman too. So history in those walls. Yeah, yeah. How could I have forgotten something that happened when I was a toddler? <laughs> sure. <laughs> have the Wilcots announced yet if they have plans or, I mean, this is all obviously so fresh. They haven't posted anything. It basically just like we're devastated and, you know, thanks for donating to the GoFundMe. But as far as any sort of official statements or plans, no word as of yet. Mm -hmm. Well, from old Austin to extremely new Austin. <laughs> There was another big announcement this week about a giant new dining entertainment sports complex called The Pitch. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah. So those of you who are super into football, when you go up to watch the Verde play their games, you can hang out at The Pitch before or after, I reckon. And there's going to be a burger bar and a Vietnamese rotisserie chicken concept that I'm super excited about. Taco Flat with their sort of Mexico City style tacos. Beach bar with sand volleyball. A coffee and bakery shop. And, you know, of course, lots of beer and cocktails. So this looks like it's going to be a really cool place to hang out with or without sort of, you know, attending a soccer game up there by the stadium. Right. So this is going to be, it's in North Austin, but it's not right near the Q2 stadium, which of course 
Q2 Stadium has become this, you know, brewery row Mm -hmm. where there are tons of bars and breweries to go to. But this is actually adjacent to the St. David's Performance Center where Austin FC trains. So it's this giant new, I don't know, it's it's kind of overwhelming just reading about it. There's like a 1,200-seat stadium, artificial surface soccer pitch. They're imagining it as also a live music venue, but as this giant hub. And I have to assume that for people who aren't going to Q2 games, games at Q2, but still want to take in Austin FC and hang out with other Austin FC fans, they're sort of presenting this as another option for fans. Yeah, that sounds really exciting and sounds like a cool place to chill out and see green even when you know, it's not soccer season. Sure. Well, I think they have not stated an exact opening yet, but Mm -hmm. the plan is mid-February and that is conveniently when the new season gets started. Okay. What else is happening on Austin Food this week? So another big announcement was the chef lineup for the Luck Reunion Potluck, which is taking place in mid-March. March 16th, I believe. And that includes local chefs like Brian Light, semi-local. He's from Brian. Ben Runkle from Salt and Time. And Tavel Bristol-Joseph from Kanji. Sonia Cote. And then also some celebrity chefs, including Duff Goldman and Scott Conant. And... North Carolina chef named Ashley Christensen. So it's going to be a big potluck and there's a live fire component too out there at Willie Nelson's Luck Texas Ranch. Longtime music fan. Have you ever made it out to? You know, I haven't, but fun fact, I think I was out there when I graduated from high school because I went to high school with Willie Nelson's grandson and for graduation, we had a giant party at Willie Nelson's ranch. Oh. So <laughs> I was there before it was cool. <laughs> it's always the trailblazer, right, Melanie? That's right. That's my middle name. Well, what else do you have to share? Do you want to talk yeah. about what you wrote about this week? Yes. So I did the very, very difficult work of writing about cinnamon rolls. Here in Austin, I interviewed uh, Siani Dean, who is a 23-year-old entrepreneur who runs Cranky Granny's Cinnamon Rolls up in the domain. I know. What were you doing at 23? I I, tell you what, I was not running a business. No, absolutely (laughs) not. Puts me to shame for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So she's got a really interesting story. She moved down here from New Jersey mid-pandemic to open this cinnamon roll restaurant. And I really hope that our readers will check out that story. And then I also did a little roundup of sort of my favorite cinnamon rolls in Austin. And again, tough job, but somebody's got to do it. And so, yeah, if you're, you know, it's still kind of cozy season. So hopefully this will provide good information and inspiration for people who are looking for something to accompany that hot tea. A hot chocolate, you know, warm drinks. Sure. It is, it is perfect weather for that kind of, like you said, cozy and just sort of nourishing. And I thought you did something really neat with your story. The framing device that you did was you basically walked the reader through the process of making cinnamon rolls as sort of a, a metaphor for how 
this woman grew her business, but it seemed pretty obvious to me that a baker was writing this story. Right there, <laughs> guilty, guilty. Yes, I have been known to make some cinnamon rolls, and it is a time-intensive, kind of annoying process that people sort of dedicate their working lives and their passion to making cinnamon rolls is that much more impressive. But my cinnamon rolls are never as good as the ones that you can buy in the store. <laughs> no, but it's also sort of the meditative process, right? Absolutely. The, the joy of baking, at least for me, is that just sort of, it's a way to kind of zone out while also accomplishing if you're like me and you're just like, I can't just like sit still for a minute. I have to always mm-hmm. be doing something. It's a way for me to be like doing something, but also, you know, it's kind of a treat for myself to just get in the zone and. Yeah, totally. And to, my inner great British bake off. Yeah. And to that end, I actually placed a curbside order yesterday for the ingredients to make Texas French bread signature Hyde Park fudge cake this afternoon. So I will be baking sort of my little tribute and stress relief. What a wonderful, yeah, tribute, homage. Where can people find that recipe? Um, cooks.com is where I found it. Yeah, cooks.com. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it's Texas French Bread's Hyde Park Fudge Cake. Looks pretty easy. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'll post a picture of that on Instagram once it's done. Oh, that's great. I think that's a a wonderful idea. And I think I might follow in your footsteps and do the same. Nice. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, we've got stories up at austinchronicle.com about Texas French bread, about the pitch, and about cranky greenies and other cinnamon rolls around Austin worth seeking out. All right, Melanie. See you again soon. Thanks, Kim. Big thanks to my guests today, Morgan O'Hanlon and Melanie Halp, to our show engineers, Bob Daly and Andrew Solon, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. And a final note to our listeners, this is going to be our last show. I have so much enjoyed hosting this show and connecting with our listeners and hopefully converting a few of you into Austin Chronicle readers along the way. We've had such a wonderful working relationship with Co-op, and I want to thank everybody at Co-op Radio for taking a chance on us. And really just the biggest thanks go to Bob Daly, who had the vision to put us on the air and has been with us every step of the way. It's been a pleasure to work with Bob and with everyone at Co-op Radio. And finally, thank you to our listeners for coming along the ride with us. Y'all take care. 